When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Find Your Biatch Edition. It's Wednesday, October 15th, 2014. On today's show, Serial, it's the new podcast from the producers of This American Life, and it tells a single story over the course of several episodes, and it is a huge hit, apparently, in the making. And then Eat More Better is the new book by our old producer and friend, Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful. Dan joins us to tell us how to make every bite more delicious, as his book's subtitle says. And finally, an astonishing essay by the novelist Zadie Smith about the island and state of mind known as Manhattan. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Have we all recovered from Los Angeles? Barely. Have we flushed the Oxycontin out of our system? I haven't taken my sunglasses off yet. (laughs) And speaking of live shows, Julia Turner, we've got another one coming up. Yeah. Yes, Steve, we are coming to Boston Town, my hometown, next Monday, October 20th. We're going to be at the Wilbur at 7.30 p.m., and we're going to have a special guest announcing here for the first time, Robert Pinsky, the poet laureate emeritus, among many other distinctions, also the man who did a brilliant translation of Dante's Inferno that I read with my family as a kid and a great poet and a great man and one-time poetry editor of Slate, um, will be coming out as our special guest. So we'll be talking poetry with Robert Pinsky, and we'll have some other great topics. Please come on out. We can't wait to see you if you're a Boston fan, a Massachusetts fan, a New Englander fan. I'm just saying there were some Bostonians who drove all the way to Montreal for our live show there. Which Montrealers are going to drive all the way to Boston for this live show? Don't be outdone, Montreal. Again, it's slate.com slash Boston Culture, Monday, October 20th at the Wilbur at 730. We can't wait to see you guys there. I have one more event to plug, too, uh, if I might. On October 24th, which is a Friday at 7 p.m., there's going to be a Slate movie party hosted by me at, uh, at Videology in Brooklyn. And it looks like what's taking shape is that we're going to get a bunch of people in to share their favorite horror movie clips. It's a Halloween-themed edition. So a bunch of us, including me, will screen some of our favorite moments from horror movies and, and talk about that, including with Jason Zinneman, who's been a guest on this podcast and who's the author of Shock Value, which is a book about, about modern horror movies. So it's shaping up to be a really fun event. If you're a Slate Plus member, admission is free. And if not, you can get a ticket at the door for $10. So we'll put a link on the show page for more information about the Silver Scream movie party on October 24th. By the way, did anyone notice uh, who uh, the Nobel Prize in economics went to? Um, Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) I, I read a story about him and his work on the regulation of the financial industry, but I don't remember his name. Well, his name is Jean Tirole, and uh, as the award uh, documents from the Swedes said, many markets are dominated by a few firms that all influence prices, volumes, and quality. Traditional economic theory does not deal with this case known as an oligopoly. That's right. <laughs> the noblest in economics this year is a uh, student of the oligopoly. <laughs> and thus your favorite economist? 
Yes, well, clearly, yeah, I'm a Tyrolean. I, I didn't know it, but now I do. <sighs> All right, moving on. Serial is the first spinoff of This American Life, the enormously popular NPR radio behemoth and podcast created by Ira Glass. Serial devotes an entire season of shows to one long-form story. The first season is hosted by Sarah Koenig, one of the show's creators. She digs into a 15-year-old murder case that centers on an alibi. As she says, for the last year, I've spent every working day trying to figure out where a high school kid was for an hour after school one day in 1999. That kid is Adnan Syed, who says for the one hour in question, he was at the library. The state of Maryland says he was strangling his girlfriend in a car. The state of Maryland won that argument before a jury. And Syed is now serving a life sentence in a maximum security prison. Why don't we listen to an excerpt from the show? Adnan's in a maximum security prison in Western Maryland. He calls me at my request about twice a week. He talks to me from a bank of eight payphones in the rec hall, a pretty large room where other guys are sitting at tables with metal seats attached to them, playing chess or cards or using the microwave or watching TV. He can get a little loud sometimes. Once I asked if all eight phones were always occupied, and he said usually not, because guys who have been in for a long time, often they have no one to call. When I first met Adnan in person, I was struck by two things. He was way bigger than I expected, barrel-chested and tall. In the photos I'd seen, he was still a lanky teenager with struggling facial hair and sagging jeans. By now he was 32. He'd spent nearly half his life in prison, becoming larger and properly bearded. And the second thing, which you can't miss about Adnan, is that he has giant brown eyes, like a dairy cow. That's what prompts my most idiotic lines of inquiry. Could someone who looks like that really strangle his girlfriend? Idiotic, I know. Well, it appears as though this is uh, going to be a huge hit. Uh, Dana, um, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I can certainly say that it's very addictive listening. I don't know if you guys agree with that. But true crime in general is something that, you know, lends itself to a serial format, right? I'm thinking of that that film, The Staircase, that slowly unpacked a crime years later. And, you know, returning to a crime in that way is something that always offers a certain degree of fascination. So I, I really love that about this podcast. The actual story that Sarah Koenig is telling is is really compelling, and I, I can't wait to listen to the next installment. I think there are some things, some rough edges that need to be worked out about this as a podcast still. I mean, I just say that from the point of view of someone who makes a podcast and listens to a lot of them. I think, for example, that the varying length of the segments is a real problem. It's sort of hard to to know how to slot this into your listening or viewing, and that is an important part of listening to podcasts, right? Because you decide when you listen to them and how, and the fact that the first installment is an hour, the second is 36 minutes, the third is 28 minutes, and I think that's all there is so far, to me has made it into this kind of endless jumble that I don't quite know how to manage. I sort of love that about it. I mean, I feel like I had an experience listening to this show that I haven't had in the audio form yet, which is they've created something that you want to binge listen to. And it is, in fact, incredibly frustrating that there's only three episodes live because you want to want, you know, I stayed up late listening to it. Like I I listened to the second one, and then I was going to go to bed at like a reasonable midnight-ish hour. But once it ended and there was a third episode there to be listened to, I was like, okay, I'm just going to listen to this next one in bed, which I never listen to podcasts in bed. So I had the classic NPR driveway moment that they talk about when you're listening to a really juicy segment on some NPR show and you sit in your driveway and you don't go inside because you want to keep hearing it. This show feels like one long driveway moment where you just want to keep listening and keep listening and keep listening. And it was novel and fun to hear that in the podcast format. I mean, I feel like with the usual shows I listen to, which are not narratively driven and tend to be more conversational or critical, those shows are great company. But it's always very easy to pause it in the middle when you're 
husband gets home from work and you want to talk to him or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, this is a brilliant use of the podcast format to tell a long form serial true crime story. There's no question about that. I think this is going to be really popular among people who already listen to podcasts and such shows. I'm not sure if, to, to what degree it will pull in people who don't, but that's a perennial problem with podcasting in general. Well, I think, I think podcasting is growing, and I think this is going to only help it grow. I totally agree with Julia on both points. I think it's driveway listening through and through. In fact, I had exactly that experience last night. And then secondly, I like the varying lengths of the episodes because I think it points to what possible strength podcasting has as a long-form medium that maybe even long-form magazine writing doesn't have. The first is that, you know, ever since new journalism and also Truman Capote's, you know, quote-unquote nonfiction novel in Cold Blood, there's been uh, embarrassment of riches in terms of great stories that are true uh, told by talented uh, journalists who maybe also write fiction. The problem has always been the dramatic necessities of the form that was traditionally reserved for fiction applied to things that are factual often begins to shade the truth in ways that retrospectively turn out to have been slightly too convenient or, you know, frankly, some tendency in the case of Capote towards out-and-out falsification. Um, What I really, really like about the varying lengths is the fixed one-hour length is not in any way dictating the content or the presentation of the content. You're you're getting the amount that seems to be, uh, in other words, the actual truth behind the narrative itself seems to be dictating length as opposed to the other way around. And then the second thing is, you know, I was never Certainly, I was never a good reporter, but I was for a while doing some reported journalism. And the thing I liked about it most was, you know, with the permission of the person you're talking to, taping a a series of phone conversations with a group of people over a period of months in which you are trying to determine the truth. And you have competing narratives, but you also have, as you transcribe those tapes, you have multiple voices. You have the actual voices of the people themselves. I love this most about this podcast. She's a wonderful narrator, but more so, I like the fact that her interviews are recorded and we get to hear the voices of all of the participants in this, you know, to the listener, to this point, unresolved drama. And so we're kind of enacting her journey as a reporter who's only able to piece together what might be the truth by talking to these various parties. And you get that immense uh, richness of these voices. Audio is so uh, perfect for a long form. It's amazing that it's taken this long for us to discover it. Well, and it's kind of a throwback, right? I mean, serial narrative was a big part of what audio listening was at the outset of radio. I don't know if there were serial long form reporting shows in this way, but well, I um, think it was like you know the origin of it was Edward R. Murrow reporting from the European theater, but it was reporting, but you got very used to the sound of Murrow's voice, you know, telling you what was happening in World War II. But this is something I think kind of new, right? I mean, I don't, I don't see a precedent for it. Yeah, I don't know enough about the full history of the beginnings of radio to, to be sure of that. But it's certainly new on the landscape in the last few decades. And I think it's mostly great. Did you not have any, did either of you have any of that sort of queasiness around a true life crime story told in a very canny narrative manner. I mean, there are, I did have some of those questions that you get when you read a really interesting piece of reporting rendered as a ripping yarn, where you feel like you're you're being a little bit red herringed at the beginning. I mean, necessarily, the first installment of this is only revealing so much of the story. And as journalists, the writers behind it know more of the story than they're telling us. They're doing this dance of the seven veils with us. And it's so beguiling, I'm not going to complain. But as a journalistic high-wire act, 
to do this without fully knowing the answer, which they're claiming in various interviews that they don't, they still don't really know how the story comes out. And they've got a few more pieces of reporting to nail down. And those pieces could really determine what our eventual judgment of the cases that they're reviewing for us. So there's that. They don't know how the story's going to end. And then there's also how do you ethically reveal only part of what you know as a journalist in an effort to cliffhanger us all into listening to the next episode. I trust their integrity. They're doing it with great care. I'm 100% game to go on this journey with them. And I'm as excited for the next episode of of Serial as I am to like watch the next episode of Scandal when it comes up on my Netflix queue. And that's no mean achievement. But it's it seems very hard to do effectively and ethically. Yeah, Julia. I mean, I think as as in, inventive as the form is in this case, I think it may be a case of the, the form outpacing the content. And I think if this were in video form, for example, if this same story were being somehow reported in video form on the web, it might start to seem to me like it was inching too close in its thematic concerns and obsession with investigating the death of this beautiful young high school student to, you know, True Detective and all the shows that we've talked about on TV that feed in a somewhat vulture-like manner off the death of beautiful young women. I mean, this is the story of a young man accused of murdering his girlfriend in high school in 1999. And so it is full of these kind of tropes and tricks that we recognize from all kinds of high school narratives and murder narratives. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are moments when real life has elements of you know the stories that we tell about it. But I don't think there's anything particularly radical in the content of the story that they chose to investigate for this first set of chapters, as, as enthralling as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I, I have the first little twinge, though, of that queasiness. And I'm too early on in serial to uh, have it uh, evolve into a full-on nausea. But by way of comparison, I watched that documentary, The Staircase, about the North Carolina murder. And it made me absolutely obsessed with that case. And it was so beautifully produced and artfully presented that you felt more than a reasonable doubt on behalf of the man convicted for the crime. But then when you go to Wikipedia or you go to a couple of other somewhat more disinterested sources, you think, of course he's guilty. I mean, there's no possible question about it. I mean, And there was some question, there was some ethical question about the staircase and the shaping of the narrative and what was left out, as I remember. I don't have chapter and verse in front of me to cite it, but, you know, people said that those filmmakers had their own agenda that they were prosecuting. Well, right. We've all made this Faustian handshake in the age of great nonfiction, including when we go see Argo, and there are, you know, uh, student radicals with guns running alongside the airplane as it's taking off. That never happened, right? I mean, it's like, based on a true story, is this is is this kind of bargain we make? We want the dinner party guests to be telling something that really happened, but they want we want them to tell it wittily. And we when we sort of, at the end of the day, what do we obey more? Do we obey, you know, the whole truth and nothing but the truth or never let the truth spoil a good story? Well, and there is just a fundamental tension across journalism between the dictates of giving the reader the fullest truth possible as soon as you know it so that they get the fullest truth possible as efficiently as possible and telling a good yarn. And those are those two things are inevitably intention. I mean, if you think of the sort of classic ethos of how you write a newspaper story, you put all the important facts in the first paragraph so that if someone only reads that, they get the news. You've delivered the news to them. It is a news delivery vehicle. And this kind of new fiction or, or more innovative true crime reporting. I mean, I also sometimes have this feeling about the work of David Gran, who's a journalist I admire deeply and whose stories I look forward to with relish. And when you read a story that's that 
expertly crafted and you sometimes get to the end and you figure out what what the result was, you do sometimes wind up those pieces and think, huh, all right, well, now that I see where this writer has landed me and I know how much they must have known when they sat down to write this piece, and I look back at a couple of the paragraphs at the beginning of the piece, I realize I was being artfully red herringed along some blind alley that right. they went down. It was constructed like a fiction, even if every fact in it was true. Yeah, and it and that does just complicate the way you feel about those writers and their relationship to the facts that they're delivering to you. You you don't fundamentally go to them for the facts. You go to them for the experience of being carried through this narrative. And that's just an interesting thing for a journalist to do. I mean, it's complicated. And I think there are responsible ways to do it. And I think the people I've mentioned do it responsibly. But it does change your relationship to the news. Obviously, mm-hmm. this is a 15-year-old story. It's not news. But it is morally complex, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Julia, in relation to that, I wanted to hear also what you thought of Sarah Koenig's tone as a as a writer, reporter, deliverer, podcaster of this story. She really is the vehicle through which we experience the story. And we also hear her voice in the interviews. So she kind of becomes a character in the story as it unfolds. And she's very This American Lifey, for whatever that means. And I'm kind of trying to figure out exactly what that does mean and how it works in this format. Absolutely, Dana. She's a This American Lifer through and through. And how would we characterize that tone? I mean, it's casual. You feel as though you're being spoken to by a peer and a friend. Uh, it's quite the opposite of Edward R. Murrow. Uh, um, that certainly, Julia, I would think, lulls you into thinking she's telling you the truth, right? There's nothing especially formal about her presentation, and therefore you feel as though it's uh, credible. Yeah, it's interesting that we live in an era where someone speaking to you offhandedly feels more trustworthy than the sort of voice of God telling you, I've discovered the truth. Now let me share it with you. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think we've seen that across voice talent. I mean, even in, you know, ads for popcorn, it's less like, bye, Jiffy, and more like, (laughs) let me tell you about my favorite popcorn. You know, it's just sort of an audio mode that we're all in right now. I mean, look, we've all spent however many hours in this room doing this podcast and talking about culture in in a casual and offhanded way. I feel like they do use it rhetorically, though, to establish trust and say, hey, I'm not some advocate who's out to try and free this guy from prison. And I'm not some Nancy Grace type who wants to lure you in with the tale of a, a beautiful dead girl. I'm just, you know, an interesting person who happened to have this story fall in my lap and I'm doing my best to figure it out. Come Which, along. by the way, she explicitly uses that language in the very opening of the first episode of the show. She says, I'm not a crime reporter. I'm not a this. I'm not a that. I mean, it really is the naked appeal of, you know, I have zero access to grind whatsoever. I'm just your buddy. Right. And by dint, I mean, I'm not a crime reporter. It's not like you go to crime reporter school and get a crime reporting degree. Like <laughs> once you're reporting a crime, you are a crime reporter. Like this show is crime reporting. I mean, maybe she's saying she doesn't have that much experience doing crime reporting, which is fair. But, you know, it's not like a specialized science. Okay, well, there's many, many interesting issues being spaded up by this new uh, format and this new show. It's fair to say that all three of us are hooked, yes? Yeah, for all the the various moral bones I've thrown on the table for people to pick at, everyone should go download this show and listen to it. It is fascinating and great and a really interesting advance in the podcasting form and totally worth listening to and thinking about. Yeah, here, here. I totally agree. Okay, the, the show is Serial. It's on iTunes. I think it's the highest rated podcast on iTunes. Probably is going to be that for uh, all of eternity. Go download it. And when you've got some thoughts about it, come uh, back to us and tell us what they are. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. 
All right. Well, moving on. Dan Pashman is the host of the Sporkful podcast. He's now the author of Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. You know him better maybe as Danny Pash, the crusty old vaudeville ham hock who used to produce our podcast. Uh, Dan, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Wait, we'll you... just be calling you Krusty Hammock all day. Yeah, that's cool. I'm good with it. That's actually my Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyway, Dan, what have you been up to? You wrote a book. That's amazing. Congratulations. I, it's out today, yes. That's right. Yeah, thank you. It is uh, it is exciting. Although it's funny. Last night, I was talking to my wife about it, and I was like, you know, after all the, I mean, it's you know, years in the making, and after all this anticipation, you feel... You always anticipate the day of the book release to be like this, like New Year's Eve countdown or someone's going to hoist you on their shoulders. And it's just sort of like, it's really more drips and drops, <laughs> you know, than it is the, like some sort of single moment of But you don't consider catharsis. coming on the Slate Culture Gab Fest to discuss your book on the day it opens to be a, a moment of This is pretty glory? big. This is pretty big. No, that's Shoulder true. hoistery. Yeah. Although, I mean, I've been here once or twice before, as you know, Dana. I, I was laughing to myself when I heard... Uh, when you guys had Masha Gessen on a while back around the time of the Olympics in Russia, and she was saying what an honor it was to be on with you guys. And I was like, Masha, I've, <laughs> I've been on that show a couple times. You know, like, you should have invented the veggie ducking instead of writing about Putin all the time. Well, Dan, this, this raises the issue of I want to congratulate you on your comeback from the uh, misjudging of the granola competition, which was a black mark on your record. Yeah, but. that was where I began, really. So I was really at the... At the bottom, as far as our, especially my relationship with you, Steve. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that we've I've climbed out of that He's hole. He's clawing his way back. <laughs> so my question for you, Dan, my first one about this book is: when you went in and pitched it to, I assume, someone who edits cookbooks and food books and books about cuisine in general, how did you frame it as something different and something new? Which, from my perusal of it, it definitely is. Yeah, no, I mean, I like to think that it's it is pretty different. I um, we pitched it sort of. I mean, we didn't only pitch it to people who did food and cookbooks. In fact, we made a point of not focusing on that you know and I had said from day one that I really it's my sincere hope that people who've never bought a cookbook will buy this book and like it just because they like to eat I mean it was kind of based off my podcast off the sporkful and which as the slogan as this book does you know it's not for foodies it's for eaters so the idea we really went with was like it's about eating and it's about analyzing the most ridiculous specific details of the, the of everyday eating. It's not about fancy food. It's just about looking at everything from grilled cheese to pizza to the buffet line or what have you and just thinking about the most specific ways to make it better. And so that was kind of the pitch. So I think that was the main – it's so long ago I can't remember the details of the pitch to tell you the truth. But that was the main <laughs> – the main focus. The book is written with a kind of, I mean, implicit in your distinction between foodie and eater is a kind of mandate. And if I read the introduction of the book right, you're sort of saying that people love food, but not enough or in exactly the right way. What is perfect deliciousness, Dan? Well, perfect deliciousness is a platonic ideal that I identify in the book that is sort of what all of us as eaters with a capital E, like what all of us should be striving towards, you know, which is just this sort of state of pure bliss, this nirvana of, of like the perfect eating experience. And it doesn't – perfect deliciousness does not mean it has to be fancy. It doesn't mean it has to be expensive. It doesn't even have to be elaborate. It just means that every time you sit down to eat something, even if it's something so simple like the sandwich you grab out in front of your office or, you know, or, eat, you know, or, or the takeout you're eating in the car on the way to pick up the kids at soccer practice – Whatever it is that you are going to strive to make it as delicious as possible, and that's so. Like, what would that be? So, for example, like eat it with the cellophane still on. 
that would be I would advise against that. <laughs> um, but like, there's a, well, there's a section of the book about vehicular eating, and there are it talks about sort of the do's and don'ts about how to arrange the takeout food in the car so that you can eat it while driving without getting in an accident, hopefully, and also to maximize deliciousness. Like, you want to form a dipping basin, for instance. Like, you need somewhere to dip your fries. Like, don't ever, you don't ever want to squirt the ketchup just on top of the whole thing of fries because now you're going to stick your hand in there, often blind because you're looking at the road. Now you get a handful of ketchup. So I actually recommend you take the, the paper wrapper from the burger and mold that into the cup holder of your car, and then you can squirt ketchup in there, and it becomes a makeshift uh, dipping basin. And then you just, as long as you have a little edge of the paper still sticking out, you just pull that out. And oh my god, that's MacGyvering your fries! You wouldn't believe. (laughs) Well, some of my favorite moments are when you talk about the physics of of different foods and kind of how you how you construct them on the plate and guard them against each other. For example, your instructions for creating a fortified gravy and mashed potato fortress, you call it, which you want to remain impregnable and keep the gravy hot until you're ready to eat it, and then, like all good fortresses, it has to be penetrable by the right the right invader. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of the things in this book are kind of the. They're the kinds of things that you've probably thought about yourself. You know, like everyone who's ever had mashed potatoes and gravy has thought, you know, at least to some extent, like, okay, what do I – like you have a plate of foods, including mashed potatoes, and you thought, what do I want to have gravy on it and what do I not want to have gravy on it? Maybe you're just one of those people who wants to pour gravy on everything. That's fine. But you, most people try to sequester it somehow, and there's the kind of classic put the dimple in the mashed potatoes and or the little well – and pour the gravy in. So I would just sort of think like, okay, but what can we do to make that even better? Like there must be a better way to build mashed potatoes. You know, it's sort of like when I was reading that part of the book, I kept thinking of you know, Richard Dreyfus and Close Encounters with the the mashed potato tower. Right. You know, I was going to try to do a joke about that in there, but I couldn't couldn't figure it out. But, you know, it's like it's something that's so simple. But if you just build it with, with a, an empty moat, you, you build a high tower with the mashed potatoes in it, and then you leave an empty moat around the outside of that, you can break down the mashed potatoes slowly but surely, dipping into the basin, and then you have the moat to contain runoff. That way your gravy is not going to run all over your plate until you want it to. I'm totally floored by your, your gravy engineering. Um, <laughs> I have to say, so Dan, I really loved the book. It's really fun. And I think what I love most about it, which is also what I love about your podcast, is that it is a very sprightly conversation of incredibly serious and deeply, deeply silly. But it's not fundamentally silly. Like, it's not a novelty book in any way, because I think you really have identified this whole realm of degustation. Can you even say that word out loud? I've literally <laughs> never said that word out loud. Only word with the French accent. <laughs> Degustation. Degustation. <laughs> um, like food culture is everywhere. It's incredibly scrutinized. I think cooking culture, how to cook, and restaurant culture, where to eat, and sort of the status symbols of, oh, did so-and-so make this or that. I met some tech guy out in San Francisco and I told him some restaurant I ate at in San Francisco, and he was like, "Oh, was April in the kitchen?" And I, you know, like there is, there is this sort of status thing around restaurants now, around cooking. Oh, you know, can you make this? Can you make that? But nobody talks about this third leg of it, which is how can you control your eating experience just based on what gets delivered to you on the plate? And some there's some cooking and sort of food prep here that you talk about as well. But there's just a lot that you can do once once you're presented with a plate of food that there's really nobody else thinking about. And it is actually legitimately something that, as you know, we've all thought about subconsciously. You all, you know, you either eat corn on the cob 
and typewriter around the world style. And at, at some one barbecue every summer, you have that conversation and you teach the terms to a new realm of kids. And th- But there are things like that about everything, about how you attack a sandwich, about how you eat a muffin. You know, you and I have talked about long versus short pasta on an episode of The Sporkful, which I was I was thrilled to see myself quoted as an expert on short shapes in this book. That's right. <laughs> um, and, an, and a short shape partisan, which I am. But it's like it's genuinely a whole realm of inquiry that is under evaluated and you kind of dig into it in a in a legitimate and interesting way. Have I gone crazy, you guys? Have I just gone gotten Pashmand? I just feel like <laughs> <laughs> you went full Pashman. I, I know, can't but it. don't didn't you find looking at the book that there's just a lot of observations in it that you, you think, Oh, I'm so glad someone thought about that. Yeah, I, Dan, I have to say, first of all, congratulations. Once every six to nine months, we get a guest on the show that we all, you know, lick all over like a litter of little puppies. And I think <laughs> you're you're that guest this time. So let awesome. me join right in and say that I was the fool who always thought Yeats' uh, poem, uh, poem, The Second Coming, was about like the spiritus mundi and the connectedness of all things. But uh, tell me what it's really about. Well, yeah, so I should, I should mention that the book is a tongue-in-cheek textbook. It's divided into school subjects like engineering, philosophy, psychology, all meant to sort of teach you how to make every bite more delicious in a fun way. And one of the chapters is language arts, and it gets a lot into <laughs> language, terminology, the words we use to describe different words, the importance of using the right words. And um, I try to sort of make each chapter build in complexity and the concepts like a school book would. And towards the end of the language arts chapter, I get into interpreting poetry. And I try to interpret Yeats as the second coming. And I think I make a pretty persuasive argument, Steve. I mean, I, you guys can tell me what you think, but I think it's actually about an all-you-can-eat buffet <laughs> um, that has run out of prime rib. <laughs> and the second coming refers to the refills. On that prime rib, which the attendees at the buffet so desperately want and need. <laughs> yeah. I love how the indignant desert birds near the last line of the poem are characterized as the dry chickens on the buffet <laughs> who are indignant because they're not being chosen to be eaten. No, no, no. Yates' scholarship the world over is rewriting itself now. I mean, like, literally journals are being pulled from library shelves and it's being rethought from the ground up. Another spot where I think you, you bring together classic texts and food in a very funny and ultimately kind of illuminating way is the Socratic dialogue about snack mixes, where you bring in Socrates and a couple of his Greek interlocutors, and then Kant and Nietzsche and various people start dropping in to opine about snack mix and how a bite of snack mix is best constructed. And it does become a larger ethical question, because of course, if you're always constructing your ideal snack mix bite, you are depriving your fellow snackers of the full array of choices. Are you? Dana? <laughs> I don't know if we can afford another granola-based fight on this show. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's actually honestly my, probably my personal favorite part of the book, just because that's sort of the stuff I studied in college-ish. Uh, Can't pretend that I read all those books, but um, <laughs> I read some of them. And uh, that to me, that, I love that section because it's just sort of like the most extreme combination of highbrow and lowbrow. And I do think, right, it's a legitimate question, like, if there's five ingredients in a snack mix and you repeatedly just pick out the peanuts, is that wrong? Is that ethically wrong? And I, and I thought that it would kind of be a fun challenge to argue that it's not wrong. Because I think the, what I found in polling people is that most people say, yes, it's wrong, but I still do it. So I wanted to find a way to make those people feel better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I disagree with at least one of your food tastes, which oh, is good. the chopped salad thing. I want to hear why we're supposed to disdain chopped salad, which is one of my favorite weekday lunch choices. Julia, you want to feel this one? <laughs> well, Dan argues that chopped salad is 
a waste of time because it's chopped so fine that you basically can't even eat it with a fork anymore because it tumbles off and you might as well eat it with a spoon and you don't say, but I inferred that there's just something fundamentally humiliating and stupid about <laughs> eating salad with a spoon. And then also a lot of dance theories about food rest on surface area to volume ratio and a chopped salad, you are maximizing surface area uh, and, and maximizing that ratio, which means the dressing just gets absorbed completely and renders the whole thing, quote, mealy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there are some chopped salads, I will say, that sometimes a salad can be chopped in like big, fat, sort of inch-type cubes or, or bigger, and maybe that's okay, lightly chopped. But I've had a couple salads that basically seem more like pico de gallo, and it's just like, I don't want to eat a bowl full of pico de gallo. Yeah, I mean, I will say that any salad you order in public, you have to get the dressing on the side, right? Because every salad is overdressed. I feel like the popular idea of how much dressing should go on a salad is about at least one-third more than I think should go on there. So everything's going to get soupy if you don't season it yourself. That's true. But but Dana, isn't putting the dressing on a chopped salad yourself harder? Or or you're, you're going to still pour it on the chopped salad and, make, and toss it. You're saying you want to do the ratio yourself. Yeah. Ideally, you have a really big, deep bowl with a few extra inches of room at the top for tossing. And then you do your own seasoning and tossing. See, I agree with the salad dressing on the side thing. And I'm a big proponent of dipping on a per bite basis in various situations. The reason why I think it's better with salad is, in a general sense, yes, to regulate ratios. But you can also reduce dressing consumption without reducing dressing flavor by uh, composing the bite on your fork of your ideal salad components. Uh, you want the whatever component you like the most should be on the tip of the fork so it lands on your tongue. And then you dip the fork, the full bite, into the dressing, only a tiny bit, just the tip. And that way that bit of dressing lands right in your tongue. And you use a lot less dressing, but you get the same amount of flavor. This, I think, is crazy. Maybe we're not food soulmates at all. (laughs) What's crazy about that? Because the point of salad dressing is about bite cohesion, not bite flavor. See, I think you want everything to be a little bit wet and lubricated. Yeah, and then it kind of adheres on the fork, and you're less likely to get toppling beet slices and more likely to have a tasty bite. Yeah, I mean, as I say in the book, Julia, degustibus non est disputandum. In matters of taste, there can be no dispute. I can't believe you came up with that. That's a great saying. <laughs> yeah, I did. It's all me. Um, and then translated it into Latin. That's right. so cool. Well, Dan just talks in Latin a lot, being a philosophy major. Yeah, that's me. Um, you know, but I, I, I think, I, I get what you're saying. That's a valid point. I think between those two, it's kind of a matter of taste. I think if you're someone who is a little bit concerned about calories and you want to be able to dress your salad with as little dressing as possible, then what I'm, you know, the dipping on a per-bite basis works. But I get your method as well, Julia, that there is merit to mixing throughout, you know, just, but you're right, Dana, you don't want too much. All right. Well, I think we need to bring this segment to a close before we cover Dan in too much puppy spit. But this was... Uh, <laughs> Can I get a this towel? A... We'll, just, we'll just dunk him gently, bite by bite. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Dip him on a bite by bite basis. Beautiful. All right. Well, Dan, your book is called uh, Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. It's by Dan Pashman, dear friend of the program and a vaudevillian of uh, long standing, <laughs> uh, of good standing. Um, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Total delight. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, moving on. The English writer Zadie Smith is best known for her novels White Teeth on Beauty and NW. She's also a professor at American University. She's been at Harvard and now is at NYU. And she's an essayist. And in these capacities, she's written maybe the definitive recent takedown of Manhattan, both the island and the state of mind. It appears in the New York Review of Books and is available online. In it, she writes... 
In Manhattan, my productivity is powered by a sociopathic illusion of my own limitlessness. And goes on to say, there's a reason, I'm going to quote it a little bit at length because I want our listeners to get the flavor of it uh, before we discuss it. So she, she goes on to say, there's a reason so many writers once lived here in Manhattan beyond the convenient laundromats and the takeout food, the libraries and the cafes. We've always worked off the energy generated by this town, the money-making, the tower building, as much as the street art and underground cultures. Now the energy is different. The underground has almost entirely disappeared. You hope there are still young artists in Washington Heights or in the barrio or Stuyvesant Town, but how much longer can they hang on? A twisted kind of energy radiates instead off the soul-cycling mothers and marathon-running octogenarians, the entertainment lawyers glued to their iPhones, and the moguls building five quote-unquote, individualized condo townhouses where once there was a hospital. Um, Julia, I'm going to start with you. You broke with form or cliche or whatever, and you chose to live in Manhattan instead of Brooklyn, an unusual choice for a young person in our line of work. Why did you do that, and how did this essay uh, strike you? Well, Steve, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about being a Manhattanite. I've lived in Brooklyn for 10 years and Manhattan for five and loved various things about both. But I do think that New York ends up being more about your particular micro-neighborhood when you live here, the particular um, set of people you interact with, the bodega you go to, the coffee shop you go to, than you would glean if you just read about Manhattan versus Brooklyn in the style sections of the New York Times. You know, the particular Brooklyn I left was very psychographically monolithic. It was a lot of... creative class people without kids who worked in journalism or the arts in some way. And the particular neighborhood of Manhattan I live in, which is sort of Chinatown, Little Italy, Soho, Phi Dai, all mixed together, is actually more diverse and has more people unlike me than the part of Brooklyn I was in. And I've enjoyed that. Wait, do I want to know what Phi Dai is an abbreviation for? (laughs) Financial district. (laughs) (laughs) You know, something that I really liked about this essay is how quickly and how skillfully Zadie Smith blows it up beyond the question of, you know, these micro neighborhoods, as you were saying, Julia, or even New York versus other cities. I mean, she's using Manhattan as a model, but really what she's kind of writing about is capital and the the stage of capitalism that we're in. And the whole essay, it's called Find Your Beach, which is a tagline for, a, I think, a Corona commercial. She never mentions the brand of beer, but she talks about looking out of her Manhattan apartment. She's somewhere on Houston Street where there's all those massive billboards and looking at this very style painted billboard for a beer and the way that, that the beer is being presented as a commodity. And it's it's just very, very smart the way she talks about finding your beach, which is this very self-helpy kind of tagline for a beer, and, and how that expands into this whole Manhattan and in a larger sense, just sort of a big city, hard-driving capitalist mentality about finding the place that's perfect for you and finding yourself within, you know, the urban sprawl and that the city has kind of become, or maybe every big city has become, this smorgasbord of narcissists just all striving for their own private beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to echo that I love the essay. I love the way it's set up. It's a bravura rhetorical performance. I love that it's equally about the inner and the outer landscape and that what's amazing about the find your beach appeal is that it's so profoundly antisocial that you live in this conurbation where people are crowded, heaped upon one another, uh, pushing one another out of the way with this vision of total isolation as their goal, that that's what they're striving for, as implied by this billboard, that they're going to achieve enough self-actualization and thereby enough power that they can sit alone, completely alone, somewhere on the beach 
and that this sort of revealingly antisocial desire is represents the last phase of a thirty or forty year you know urban renaissance in New York that began with Soho she 's in Soho and rightly historically says that what really started this whole return to the city were the artists who colonized Soho back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and that, you know, she doesn't really go into that. But but for the purposes of my book, I researched a lot of that Soho Renaissance. It's actually quite fascinating how village-like and sociable it was. It had nothing to do with urban striving whatsoever. It had to do with forming a community of completely, almost completely non-commercial artists, simply because the old and, and largely abandoned industrial lofts were big enough for people doing installation-sized work and uh, uh, they ended up just squatting in and living in these spaces but it was the the sense of community and small community and face-to-face community of the people who initially colonized that area back in the 1960s was powerful and um, it's amazing how far from that we've traveled. Did you guys not feel, I felt reading this essay, it reminded me a little bit of Serial and that it seemed to me like a triumph of writerly style over content. I actually thought the ideas in this essay were kind of boring, pretty hackneyed, not that interesting, been there a thousand times, like whatever. I did not find the ideas in the essay interesting at all. Manhattan has been taken over by rich, boring capitalists. Artists have to move outward. Oh, they're finding other places. It's Pittsburgh. It's Bridgeport. It's Philadelphia. Blah, blah. It's Brooklyn. You know, what a lament. The world has changed. Now there are new places where interesting culture thrives. And Manhattan is a desiccated hall of boring capitalists. Fine. That seems true. Okay, let's lament it. The deep, close reading of a Corona ad, which I actually found her elision of the brand and her unwillingness to say Corona to be so... Cowardly? No. So obtrusive that I all I was thinking about the whole essay was just Corona. Like, I was just like, I'd like a Corona. Like, I know those ads. <laughs> it's Corona. Um, the ad worked. You're going to find your beach. Yeah. It made me want to find my beach and, with a Corona. And, um, you know, I found the sort of elision there to be almost distracting in, in my sheer knowingness of the Corona, which is maybe what she was trying to point out to me about my own branded brain, but whatever. And I felt also to suggest that because Corona, that we're all pursuing this alone isolated beach is the end point of our ambition and beer ads used to be about community and partying with ladies. It was like a fucking bullshit. I'm sorry. The beers have had distinctive brands all along. I think if you look to the history of beer advertising, like Bud Light is the party beer and Corona is the vacation beer. And that's just been true. It's not like the old Corona ads were party ads. It's just true. That's their brand identities. They take them very seriously. Sorry if this sounds capitalistic to have followed this, but I have. And Corona has always been the vacation beer. And there are different fantasies of real Relaxation. Uh, One is you're relaxing in the city with your friends on the weekend. And the other is you take a vacation from your ambition every so often and you go off to a beach and maybe it's like more remote and secluded. Right. And, I and think, it's not I Julia's the, check from Corona no. holding sticking out of her pocket a little bit. It's not the end point of capitalism that people like vacations and they fantasize about having beers on vacations. Like It's just not. It's just not. You know, like think, the, the points are all well taken, but they're old. They're fucking old. And her writing is interesting enough that it was fun to read it anyway. But like, whatever. No Fun. new ground was broken by this essay. <laughs> Find your soapbox. <laughs> I, think, I think Julia may have found hers. Um, let, me, let me say, let me, um, let me saw this baby right in half here. I, I thought a revealing part of the essay is when she name checks the gallerist Ivan Karp, who was Leo Castelli's assistant back in the legendary days of his pop art gallery and then branched off on his own quite successfully in Soho. He was one of the first two or three people to open an art gallery down in Soho. And she identifies Carp as, as, you know, he's sort of her token of this 
period of authenticity in Soho. Well, that's an interesting error because, in fact, when you look at the sequence of events in Soho, the very first people who moved down there were getting away from the art gallery system. They, they were making work that could not be displayed and sold within the gallery system. That's the way they wanted it. They wanted to move somewhere where there were no art galleries. And in fact, the first wave of interlopers were the gallerists, were Carp, and uh, I'm going to forget the name of the other one, but very soon after that was Ileana Sonnabend. And and uh, they thought that this was bringing retail back into the, uh, uh, and the, and the market, the art market, back into the equation of art making. So th- the point being, at any point in the cycle, someone believes that the people who came before them were totally authentic, that they themselves represent, you know, the last, you know, the person closing the door on the authenticity and everyone who came after them is a, is a, uh, is a vulgarian, right? A despoiling vulgarian. So it is not a self-conscious essay in that regard, a sophisticatedly self-conscious essay in that regard. However, I regard that, I think of this piece of writing less as an essay than as a diary. And, you know, the New Republic used to be great at this and New York Review of Book books does it occasionally too it's like a diarist it's a certain very felt piece of writing uh, that 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 lowers the dipstick into a particular moment or place or both and just takes the 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 the, the flavor of it the measure of it um and it's it's meant to be subjective and a little displaced and angry i don't think it's meant to be historical or in any you know kind of pomo sense uh highly uh, sophisticated. No, it's a piece of mood writing, and it's a good piece of mood writing. I liked reading it, but when I started to think about it, it fell apart. And I think the best essays like that, the best pieces of mood writing, very specifically about a place or even very specifically about New York, ideally they put their finger on a mood that's a little bit less pervasively reviled than this particular mood is. Like, mm-hmm. The great Joan Didion essay about leaving New York, goodbye to all that, about the particular moment of living in New York City where your carefree gad about youth has begun to curdle and you realize that maybe New York is not a sustainable place for grown-ups. That's a much more specific idea about New York. And I remember reading that in my mid-20s, having left New York, I think, at the time and feeling like, oh, my God, this thing is so specific and it's been happening for so many decades and it totally has happened to me. And there was a revelation in reading that essay, which there's mm-hmm. no moment of revelation in reading I dis- Sadie Smith. No, I, I'm going to disagree. First of all, I don't think it's fair to compare it to Goodbye to All That. That's maybe one of the best essays ever written about leaving New York. Behind. You're going to throw down and write a mood essay about New York. You're going to get compared to Goodbye to All That and you should be ready for it. She's not actually writing about leaving Snap. New York. She never Wait, says she wants let, to let, leave. Let, let, let me make my point here uh, because I'm now going to puncture. Uh, I finally get to turn around and, and knock Julia Turner off of a soapbox. I love that the roles are finally reversed because you're wrong. There is a point in this essay that's unique to it and actually is uh, beautifully observed and original, which is that the characteristic fact of Manhattan, contemporary Manhattan, is that it's this kind of paradox whereby people view other the other people around them purely as impediments or or instruments to their own eventual apotheosis, which is achieved and represented by isolation and loneliness, which means that that, that there's this togetherness because we all need to aggregate in the city in order to prove out our ambition in a you know public and meaningful way but what we really want is to get beyond and away from all of these other people in order to experience our self-apotheosis self-apotheosis completely alone and that's why the essay is called find your beach and divigates at length on this billboard it's actually quite astute and interesting it's not something i'd read before 
I just didn't buy it. I don't think the fact that people want to go to vacation on the beach means what she says it means. I don't think she persuasively argues that. I'm not sure that's what she is arguing. I mean, my, my only response to the, to the Joan Didion comparison is that I think that the more apt comparison for this essay, although I don't think it's as good, is Colson Whitehead's great column about not leaving New York, but about the experience of nostalgia for the old New York you used to know while walking around the current New York. It's called Lost and Found, and it, it ran as a New York Times column a few years ago. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful essay about some similar sort of moods and something that I think about. Certain phrasings in that essay I'll think about as I walk around New York. I'll think, you know, that old store is gone that I used to love and think of this great thing he says about how how every New Yorker, especially New Yorker who didn't grow up here, you know, thinks that the ultimate New York exists at the moment that they moved and that the decay all began at that moment. And the idea that he sees that as this recurring wave, you know, of New Yorkers having that feeling is just something that's really stayed with me. That is a beautiful essay. And it's true. I mean, I have great ambivalence about being a Manhattanite and great ambivalence about being a New Yorker overall. Like, I think there's a way in which New York allows a state of suspended adolescence where you don't ever have to be a true grown-up as a transplant. Like, you don't have a yard, probably, and you don't have to do rake leaves, and you don't necessarily have to shovel your sidewalk, and you don't, you just don't have to take on a lot of the responsibilities of adult life that, you know, you don't have to necessarily not get drunk at a party because you don't have to drive home because they're, like, you know, grown men whose job it is to drive around at night and pick you up and drive you somewhere. Like, But maybe that's just a, a more workable model of adulthood for some people than mowing your lawn and driving your car. I try not to judge myself too much for this, but having grown up with one model of adulthood that I very much revered in my lovely and wonderful parents and finding myself as an adult in New York who has a very different life, there's a disjuncture between what I think of as being a real grown-up and what my grown-up life has become. And, you know, the, I have great ambivalence about all of that. And there's there's much, I mean, the, the the beautifully wrought essay about what it feels like to be in New York at a particular moment is a classic style of essay. And it has rendered many good things. And I, for all that I'm um, dumping cold water on this essay, I did really enjoy reading it. But I just, I genuinely, I do think you're right, Steve, that that point about the fantasy of the solitary beach vacation is interesting and about the kind of ambition and hunger and drive of the city, which is one of the things that makes it really fun and energizing to be in. You know, those are those are interesting things to reflect on. But I just genuinely don't think that the fantasy of lying in the hammock with a corona says anything about the end times of capitalism. I think people mm-hmm. have enjoyed relaxation for many years. And well, the fact that you that is, is sometimes more relaxing to be by yourself than to be in a group of people does not suggest the end of a communitarian this, ideal uh, or the like drive of the <laughs> self at the expense of human experience. I'm glad that I found the Just park take your bench, cooler cra- and go to the beach, Julia. <laughs> I'm so glad that I found the crazy park bench, Julia Turner. I've been looking for her for five years, and she's a fucking delight. But let me just say that this is to travesty a, uh, an elegant essay with oversimplification, but that is your park bench self-talking, so we'll forgive you. But I want to say very quickly, because we have to end this segment, that I agree with the Coulson Whitehead plus Sachange argument about New York, because it's histo- probably got a degree of historical accuracy and depth to it uh, and sophistication, great. I will also say that sometimes things do change, and and Manhattan has gone through a period of change. It's Bloomberg's Manhattan that we're all inheriting, and the gleaming towers that have $40 million apartments are something new. It's a much more international city, a global a city of global money and global finance. The character of it's going to change as the character of London has radically changed over the last 20 years. And here it comes. And, and we're going to take its measure over and over and over again. Occasionally, it's going to be in a moody and subjective way, as this essay did. I think that that's entirely appropriate to the change. Okay, I get the last word. Um, the essay is called Find Your Beach. It's in the New York Review of Books. It's available online, and we will link to it. And we do want to know what you think of it. Facebook.com 
slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the uh, moment in the podcast where we endorse day. No, 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 no. What do you have? Well, I'm going to go regional this week. But since we just did a whole section on Manhattan and Brooklyn, it is not our region. It is something from another region that I'm endorsing. It's the last bookstore in Los Angeles, which I visited when we were there for our live show last week. And the last bookstore kept popping up. People mentioned it. A couple people mentioned it in my Twitter mention saying, check out this bookstore since your show is downtown. And then I spent the day after our show wandering around uh, Los Angeles with a friend who lives there and having this wonderful day where strange neighborhoods and new places kept opening themselves to us. And along the way, we happened to pick up a copy of the Alt Weekly, one of the L.A. Alt Weeklies, and the last bookstore was on the cover. So we thought it must be ordained. So we went to the last bookstore, which is on the corner of Fifth and Spring in, in downtown Los Angeles. And it is seriously one of the best bookstores I've ever, ever visited. It's incredible, huge, sprawling, wonderful organization principles and little separate rooms for crime and horror, a separate room for old kind of antique books that's beautiful to browse in, and just multiple floors and nooks and crannies and all of this art made out of books. So I guess, you know, maybe they get so many books by bulk that are unsellable that they decided to use them as a building element. So there's a little arch that's all built out of books that are maybe bolted or hot glued. I don't know how they're held together. And the uh, the counter is sort of like a wood slab resting on top of piles of books. So anyway, you just you feel like you're in this wonderful book paradise. And there are some really reasonable prices there, too. I did have one person pop up when I Instagrammed lovingly a bunch of beautiful pictures of the last bookstore saying, that place rips you off if you try to go sell books and don't patronize these crooks. So I have to throw that in there. That is also somewhat true of The Strand, one of the great bookstores of New York. It's not where you go if you want to get a great deal on your used books. But whatever they're doing, I hope they keep on doing it well. And it, Angelinos will patronize that place. Ah, uh, that sounds excellent, and I'm so disappointed I didn't go there when we were in LA. But oh, next, next time, time definitely, definitely you got to go. Yeah, without fail. Okay, um, Julia, what do you have? Dana's story reminds me that I did stop by City Lights, the vaunted independent bookstore of San Francisco, when we were there. I just love the different sections they had in the bookstore. There was one on anarchism. Class war was a distinct section from anarchism. Muckraking was right next door. Then there was also a big blue sign for Praxis with an arrow. I was like, I haven't, I haven't really heard that much about Praxis since I was in college. It just, it was, it was a great, great bookstore to explore. Theory this way, Praxis this way. <laughs> yeah, I didn't find the sign for theory, but <laughs> I think that was the spirit of it. Um, In a similar vein, I am going to also endorse a local experience from our travels. Maybe we get points for our local experiences not being East Coasty, or maybe it's just going to be annoying. It's still a coast, though, so we're not we're not helping the people who say we don't talk about the Midwest. All right, one one geographic region at a time, people. (laughs) We're getting there. Um, So the morning of our live show in San Francisco, I went for a hike with my husband from Baker Beach, which is a beautiful beach over on the west side of San Francisco, right by. Uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, and then up through this series of pathways to Marshall Beach, which is a beach you can only get to by foot. And what an insane landscape that city has. I mean, it's just absurdly beautiful there. And it's absurd to have such hilliness within a city and to have these secluded parklands where you can go hiking. I mean, I understand we live in a glorious city full of great parks, but there's something wild feeling about the hilliness of those parks that's just amazing. And I love any kind of secluded area where you have a well-trod but f- uh, but still wild-feeling footpath. There's something about a little a little urban area where you can take steps up and down and go over to cliffy overlooks and see interesting seals and pelicans. And um, it just felt like an extremely un-city experience. The morning we were there, it was very foggy. And we kind of nestled in and leaned against some rocks. And I read some of my prep for the live show in San Francisco. Um, And it was a beautiful urban, unurban experience. 
And so probably this is like endorsing going to see the Statue of Liberty. But if you're visiting San Francisco, go to Baker Beach and then hike north to Marshall Beach and you will not be sorry. Uh, That's a wonderful endorsement. Um, Okay, mine this week is uh, a book review by the writer John Gray. He's a Brit and um, uh, and a what to call him? I mean, something of a political philosopher slash essayist slash generalist. Uh, He's a tremendously good writer, and it's his takedown of Richard Dawkins, and uh, it's just it's beautifully done. Let me read a tiny bit of it, and you'll get the flavor of it. He says, No two minds, Dawkins and Darwin's, could be less alike than those of the great 19th century scientist and the latter-day evangelist for atheism. Hesitant, doubtful, often painfully perplexed, Darwin understood science as an empirical investigation in which truth is never self-evident, and theories are always provisional. If science for Darwin was a method of inquiry that enabled him to edge tentatively and humbly towards the truth, for Dawkins, science is an unquestioned view of the world. The Victorians are often mocked for their supposed certainties, when in fact many of them, Darwin not the least, were beset by anxieties and uncertainties. Dawkins, by contrast, seems never to doubt for a moment the capacity of the human mind, his own at any rate, to resolve questions that previous generations have found insoluble. I think just as Zadie Smith's essay gets at this turning point that I believe we're at, where Manhattanization is turning into de-Manhattanization, so too Gray's essay is locating a kind of turning point in the intellectual landscape where we're going from Darwinizing everything to slowly, and it's going to be painstaking, de-Darwinizing everything. It's going to be painstaking because Darwin, of course, is a kind of intellectual loyalty oath uh, by which one enters fully modern life, which he probably should be at some level, but he's been overstretched, radically overstretched by the neo-Darwinists. Dawkins being absolutely the worst offender. Gray is a brilliant, subtle mind. I have no doubt that he believes in natural selection that were derived uh, biologically and not supernaturally from our forebears. Uh, uh, Nonetheless, uh, this strikes at the heart of a kind of evangelical arrogance that we came to recognize as we secularized in traditional religion, it now besets science itself. It's become something called scientism. This is one of the best essays I've ever read, debunking it, or at least casting reasonable doubt upon it. Anyway, I highly recommend it. It's in the New Republic, and and, uh, it's online. We'll link to it. It's called The Closed Mind of Richard Dawkins, Whose Atheism is Its Own Kind of Narrow Religion by John Gray. Highly recommend it. All right. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Say you hey.